Hello, and welcome to this special edition of Inside Briefing Extra, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Alex Thomas, and I'm a programme director at the IFG. It's an interesting day for Whitehall watchers, for civil servants, and for think tanks dedicated to making government more effective, which is what the IFG is all about. Earlier today, Michael Gove, the Minister for the Cabinet Office, the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, unveiled a grandly titled document called the Declaration of Government Reform. It reaffirmed plans to move more than 20,000 civil servants out of London. It included more detail on pay, some new words on performance, on accountability, and an aspiration, at least, to redesign the way that government works. There's also more than we've heard before about the purpose of reforms and learning from what succeeded and failed during the COVID-19 pandemic response. So we've pressed the emergency podcast alarm to uh, work out what it all means and whether any of it will work. We've got a top IFG duo with me in the virtual studio, uh, senior fellow Kath Haddon, who leads our work on the Constitution and has the best historical view of civil service reform you can get. Hi, Kath. Hello, Alex. And Associate Director Tim Durrant, who runs our Minister's Programme. Hello, Tim. Hello, Alex. And I'm delighted to be joined remotely by Lord O'Donnell, Gus O'Donnell, who, as Cabinet Secretary from 2005 to 2011, was the top civil servant in the land and knows more than most about how things work, what ministers want and what reforms make sense and which ones don't. Gus, uh, I was going to start with uh, you, which is... Uh, It struck me that one of the points that Michael Gove, when he launched this earlier today, was very keen to make was to both ground these reforms in history. He talked a lot about the reforms to the Cabinet Office when Maurice Hankey became the first Cabinet Secretary. He talked about uh, Attlee and and reforms after the um, Second World War. And he talked about um, how crises spur reform. uh, They create a more adaptive government uh, and help uh, governments respond at um, speed. Um, uh, do you think that's uh, right? Are these reforms grounded in in, in history? Well, I think um, certainly crises test your systems a lot, and there are things you can learn from crises. But there are also plenty of things to learn about reform that aren't related to the COVID crisis. So in my mind, what's what's really significant in this is the wording, so the tone, and the fact that it says government reform. I've long thought that all of this that, that refers to civil service reform and leaves ministers out of the picture is wildly misplaced. So the fact that it's government reform is great. Um, it's, it says lots and lots of things. So uh, a lot will be in question of how they carry them out, and whether they take forward mostly very, very positive ideas. So I'm, I'm really optimistic about all of this. And uh, I hope that we can go into the specifics if you like, but I hope that they will implement them, and that uh, this, I think, will lead to better government. Uh, and what do you think is particularly new? I mean, let's dive into some of those specifics. Um, I, I was struck that quite a lot of this is stuff we've heard a lot about. Some some things for decades, and some things for at least a few uh, years. What's really new about the announcement today? So, for me, it's that recognition that ministers and civil servants work best when they're operating together. And the number of times I've been at cabinet committees where there's been a lot of ministers reading out their civil service briefs and you're thinking, actually, there's a lot of people that know a lot of stuff about this that should be in this room and should be round the table as opposed to possibly sitting at the back. So I think they've learned from the success of the National Security Council 
the best way of doing this is mixed. I'd like to see all cabinet committees now start you know, have to be mixed between ministers and officials, that they work much more as teams and, and that they work across uh, issues. So that the, the reference to multidisciplinary teams, I think, is, is brilliant. I think that's really, really important. Things like the evaluations task force, I think, are great. Um, so there's a lot in this that one could take. Uh, training, you know, the Institute for Government, you know, you've got a job here. <laughs> trained. Um, so some of these things I'll believe when they really happen. But actually, training ministers how to assess evidence. Wow, that would be great. Uh, and to work with the civil service. Brilliant. Um, so lots of good ideas. Um, a lot will be in the implementation. Brilliant. Thanks, Gus. And we'll come on to the uh, uh, implementation of it in, in in a moment and dig into some some more of those things that you uh, that you highlighted. Uh, Kath, um, is this an end to hard rain? Michael Gove talked about the sun coming out at the end of the event uh, today. Do you think that's right? Yeah, it feels like it. Um, I mean, I, I completely agree with with Gus that the most interesting thing about this is probably the tone of it and the fact that ministers are part and parcel of it. It's not just this idea that somehow you can reform the civil service and then government will be perfect because so much of the problems in civil service reform are about the relationship with ministers, accountability, the sort of incentive structures, all that kind of stuff. Um, I think um, that said, um, you know, the the one thing that, that worries me about it is one is obviously how much of this is sort of age old problems and do they actually have a practical plan that will surmount those issues it's very easy to sort of you know say the the sort of ideal system that you want to be in place it's much harder to then um, make sure in any large organization that you actually turn that into practice and the other thing to note is just there are going to be one or two things in here that will still set alarm bells for people Uh, you know it talks about sort of visibility over permanent secretary appointments I mean ministers already have that and you know, it talks about needing a sort of wider pool of candidates for ministers to, to sort of or for the prime minister to choose from. I mean, again, how far do you want to go with that? And given some of the debates about appointments and uh, the departures of various civil servants in the last uh, year and a half, two years, you know, there will be some people that are concerned about this. It sounds like positive language. But actually, is this an attempt to sort of give ministers, give the government a bit more control um, over the civil service. I'm not necessarily as sceptical, partly because the language in this is very different from the sort of Dominic Cummings hard reign, but it is still something that we'll have to keep an eye on. They need to show that they're going to appoint people on the basis of their skills and suitability and not um, any concerns about the sort of personalities or, or uh, you know, where they sit on particular issues of the day like we had with Brexit. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, a career in the civil service, and I can tell a uh, hard-fought drafting phrase when I uh, see one. And the one you, the one you picked out, ministers visibility, have visibility yeah. of senior civil service appointments in the departments they lead, uh, just screamed uh, a fight behind the scenes uh, for me. Uh, I think uh, there'll be debates over what visibility means uh, for a long time to come. Um, uh, Tim, one of the uh, points that uh, stands out from uh, uh, from the sort of later part of this uh, document is it talks quite a lot about um, some of the ethical and uh, propriety and values 
uh, aspects of civil servant ministers' relationships. It talks about appointment on merit being uh, inviolable. Um, it reaffirms the civil service values of impartiality, uh, honesty, uh, integrity, and objectivity. Also talks about zero tolerance on uh, bullying. Uh, the the document is signed by the prime minister. Does uh, does he have a credibility problem on this? Yeah, I think it's I think it's an important question, Alex. Because I, while I agree with with everything that's been said already, I think you know m- most of this is focused on. Uh, the civil service. It is it is a government reform document, but it is mainly about sort of how the the civil service will will uh, change and do things. And um, actually, you know, one of the big criticisms we've seen of of this prime minister is his kind of perceived unwillingness to enforce um, and uphold the standards that uh, are expected of ministers. And so, I think there's an going to be an interesting question: Is Boris Johnson uh, able to show that he and his ministers are going to sort of meet the standards? Uh, expected of them, while um, you know, setting out very clearly standards expected of the civil service. Um, we're expecting a new version of the ministerial code at some point soon, so that'll be interesting to see how the PM approaches that and what he um, what he sets out there. But I think um, yes, this, there's a lot of good stuff in here, um, but it's it's you know, I think my sense is that the the still sort of you know the relationship between ministers and civil servants uh, still. Uh, has probably some way to go to be uh, fully repaired and strengthened. And this is only just one step in that process. Mm, I think that's, and I mean, uh, the other thing, Alex, that I'd say on that, I mean, we'll talk about implementation in a minute. But the other way to judge civil service reform documents is, is almost the old phrase, you know, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. There'll be hundreds, maybe thousands, I don't know how many read it, of civil servants for whom this is also a declaration to them about the kind of civil service that the government um, wants to create. But for them, the key issue is then whether they see people live up to the standards that are set out in this document. So when they hear people always talking about appointment by merit, about what behaviours are the right behaviours, what are the right ways to develop your career and so forth, they then need to see that that is actually how the civil service operates. That's how ministers behave. Um, That's what's happening on the ground. If there then becomes a bit of a dissonance between what's happening in their department, their particular area, and some of the stuff in this, then they will soon become cynical about whether or not it's it's real reform. Right, Gus, do you do you agree with that? And um, and what should Simon Case uh, do to 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 entrench all of this, as Kath says, Gus? Right. So so first of all, I do agree with that. The um, fascinating that we all picked on that sentence. Ministers having visibility of SDS mm. appointments uh, is absolutely well key. I, I looked at that earlier and. Um, I do worry about that enormously. Uh, and, you know, what we want by opening up SCS posts to uh, open competition, which I, I really like the idea of that, um, but it's got to be people, the best people for the job. And if, if you get ministers picking in, you know, saying, I want this, my yes man or woman for this job, then that that's absolutely disastrous. We can't have that. And yes, there is a problem about a zero tolerance approach to bullying being said by a prime minister. We didn't exactly follow up on Alex Allen's report to the Home Secretary. So people will be dubious about that. The other area I think is there's a lot about um, putting SCS uh, people outside London, um, which has been tried many times. Part of the problem has always been that ministers don't go out. And there's there's a reference in here that ministers will but they're actually taking account of the technology and the fact that Parliament may be uh, more able to deal with them virtually. Well, all of those things will mean 
to my mind, that ministers will find it even easier to stay in London uh, and because they'll engage with their civil servants through Zoom and the like. So um, I do worry that we will see SCS outside London. So I, I, I strongly, like I say, support the idea of uh, uh, devolving away from London, but I do worry how it's going to happen in practice. Uh, Gus mentioned it briefly there in terms of sort of opening up appointments in the in the civil service, but in a way that is um, uh, that is still based on uh, merit, the inviolable uh, principle that this document talks about. Tim, just coming back to you again on the sort of ethical points, uh, mm. uh, we understand that that um, the, the publication of this might have been slightly delayed uh, because of some of the uh, Lex Greensill, David Cameron mm. um, furore. Um, I was very struck that Michael Gove. Um, put in a fulsome defence of outsiders, people with commercial experience coming in to um, do jobs in the civil service, but also that the ethical standards needed to be strengthened. Is that, you know, is that, does the document get the balance right on that, do you think? I think it does. I think because, you know, one of the the kind of recurring themes in the commentary around Greensill and everything was that there's nothing inherently wrong. And actually, there's a lot of benefit in people coming into government from the private sector. You know, that was, uh, that was a key theme. It's been a key theme for for lots of, of recent prime ministers, and and there is a lot of, of of truth and benefit in that. And so, what what I think nobody wants is for the pendulum to swing too far the other way now, and to make it really difficult for for people to either uh, join join government from the private sector or uh, people in government, whether ministers or civil servants, to get good jobs outside um, government because of the you know onerous restrictions on on what they can and can't do after leaving government. So I think, as you say, Alex, the, the question is balanced. And I think this this does get it right. Um, I think the, again, uh, like Kath said, you know, a lot of what will be interesting to see is how, how this is applied for sort of your kind of your average civil servant, as it were, I suppose, or, you know, you're not your sort of very senior people like um, uh, Greensill and Cameron and, and, and Crothers. But, you know, how, if, if a deputy director decides they want to, to, do three years outside in industry, how easy is that made? Or how easy is it for someone to come in for three years into government? And that's where I think you'll probably get the real sort of, you know, the working level benefit, you know, in, in departments where people are sort of working closely on detailed policy issues, but coming at it from different points of view, that'd be really helpful. Um, and th- this this document clearly wants to allow that to happen. But again, how, how it really works will be, will be the test. Can, can I just add one point to that, Tim, that Everyone refers to the private sector in all of this. And yes, the private sector is important, but there's also the civic sector. Mm. Having civil servants who have had experience of working in charities, local government, you know, all sorts of other areas, not for profit, I think is, is massively important. I think the problem, as we all know, with, with private sector people are going to be pay. And, um, you know, there isn't much that's, that's been said about pay in this. It talks about implementing capability-based uh pay which has been in the works for for quite a while but is um uh is always in danger of meaning, meaning uh, different things to to different um people because you know the theory being that you're rewarded for your uh, capability and your skills more directly but the, the problem is always how to do that and you're right gus the document doesn't say uh, anything specific about um ab- about pay um well, I, yeah but on that alex so so they say they're going to re- relate it to capability yet they also say they're going to define outcomes for which ministers uh, and officials are responsible and their performance will be held against these outcomes. Now, I think this is a really good idea. I mean, having ministers pinned down as to what they're actually trying to achieve and, and not inputs but outcomes would be massively big step forward. 
but but you know that's a different thing from uh, rewarding them on the basis of their capabilities. Yeah, um, I think so. Te- I have the capability to do wonderful things, but if I'm useless uh, <laughs> and don't deliver anything, um, why would you pay me a lot? Uh, uh, well, quite. And it's the tensions that play out in this document, isn't it? But Gus, you've you've teed me up perfectly to move us on to um, uh, probably the sort of biggest, biggest, hairiest problem in government that, uh, to my mind, the document, um, uh, uh, the statement addresses and sets a gives a sense of direction, but doesn't uh, really move the discussion that much further forward. And that's accountability, accountability for ministers, accountability for civil servants, uh, and uh, and. And and how that works within government. Um, I mean, Gus, you, you mentioned there was there was another intriguing statement in 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 this document. Uh, it talked about um, targets against which ministers can be judged. Um, mm. There was a reference, and then it uh, sunk without trace in the rest rest of the uh, rest of the document. Um, I mean, Kath, do you think it's ever possible to uh, to come up with targets uh, to judge ministers that aren't inherently uh, caught up in the politics of the day? Well, I mean, I, you know, as you know, I always like a good reshuffle. And uh, this means that I'm even more looking forward to when we get to see the report cards for all the ministers that Boris Johnson decides to move or remove uh, or promote uh, from government. Because, um, you know, of course, performance plays some kind of role. You want your good performers, whether that be of delivering policies or in front of the media or in Parliament or whatever. Uh, You know, you want to make a success of them. Poor performers you know, you don't want necessarily near government, but it's not usually as, you know, uh, uh, the, the biggest factor alone is there's a lot of politics that goes into that. So, yeah, I mean, the big question is what then would the prime minister do if he's got a poor performing minister? How will civil servants um, behave, react? What can they do if they know that their minister is not performing, um, you know, as well and they're struggling? I mean, you know, accountability, There's a huge amount you can talk about. But the thing for me is always select committee appearances. When you see civil servants in front of it, and there's always these complaints from those on the outside media and so forth that they're not answering the question, they're dodging it, they're fudging it, all this kind of stuff. But the problem is it's very difficult for civil servants to explain exactly what went on because they can't shove the blame onto ministers. So how is this going to work in practice? Uh, You know, that's the big question. I mean, yes, I absolutely would... um, Love to see much more clarity about that. I don't think you can easily delineate or you're specifically in charge of this and we'll judge on that because, you know, ministers, there's very few of them and a lot of problems in government are very much systemic issues, not necessarily one decision or or one thing that you did. So what does that actually mean um, in practice, basically? Yeah, I think as well, it's interesting if you look at sort of when this has almost or sort of happened before. So example I'm thinking of is uh, Rory Stewart and he said you know he would resign if he didn't get violence in prisons down now in the end he was actually reshuffled before the the year that he set himself to do that so we never found out whether or not he was going to hit the target but he was I think on target for it Um, and I think as well I'm right in saying during the coalition some Lib Dem ministers perhaps had sort of performance reviews with Nick Clegg or at least discussions about how they were doing but you know it's you you can count the examples where this has happened before on on the fingers of one hand I think and Mm. it's not you know, it's, it's very, like Kat says, it's very difficult to actually prove, you know, because a minister is uh, sort of responsible or oversees so much different, uh, so many different things within government, it's very difficult to sort of say, well, because they were performing effectively on, in this area, then this positive outcome happened. So I think how you actually yeah. 
quantify and assess them. You know, how do you give ministers smart goals? Basically, that's the big question. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, there's another way of looking at this, which is remembering that accountability isn't just about sacking people who are poor performers. It's yeah. also just about sort of, you know, holding them to account, having them account for stuff. So there is something in this that is just about giving um, ministers clearer priorities for their workload uh, and, you know, making it clear what their their priorities within the department should, should be. And Tim, as you and I know from interviewing hundreds of ministers, well, hmm. quite a lot between the two of us, um, a lot of the time we ask them, were you given any specific objectives when you spoke to the, the prime minister or to your secretary of state? And in some cases, yes, they, they're given a you know clear, this should be your priority. But in a lot of cases, no. So if there's going to be a bit more focus on that, where government as a whole is thinking about strategizing the different priorities that it's setting for people and making sure that they're achievable, that's also a good thing. And Gus, what about civil servants? Uh, so we've talked a bit about ministers uh, there, which is you know often often uh, forgotten in this. But the document talks about more use of senior responsible owners who are held accountable for delivering things, outcome delivery plans, setting out what departments should be doing. Do, do you think it moves us forward on uh, on that debate? Well, two things. I think we have to start with ministers, um, but I'll come back to civil servants. So during the Blair uh, reign, we had uh, letters going out at the end of uh, spending reviews, you know, giving ministers clear priorities and the like. And that wasn't followed through, unfortunately. And it's hard. But but what you don't want and what this document actually gives a bad example of is reference back to the management by inputs. So we get the whole uh, police thing again, you know, 20,000 more police. I mean, for God's sake, I thought we moved on from there to understand that actually we were trying to reduce crime and the cost of crime. You know, you get the same thing in health. where They keep talking about doctors and hospitals rather than improving the health of the nation. So I do think uh, it's we need to be careful here. I think for ministers and civil servants, you know, I, uh, I know Michael Barber's involved, and that could be a real positive in terms of delivery and all the rest of it. But it could also go badly wrong if it turns out to be delivery of targets that miss the point. You know, and everyone goes, you know, yeah, we'll chase four hours in uh, A&E waiting times, but actually they do it by moving people around and, and, you know, basically hitting the target, but actually reducing the outcome that you're really interested in. I think for civil servants, it's it's um, it's understanding the you know what it is ministers really want to achieve. So not some kind of intermediate input target, but what's the ultimate goal? And then kind of having a you know theory of change to use the modern jargon uh, as to how you relate that uh, ultimate goal to what what actually is within the control of governments and ministers. And in our geeky way, I was quite excited about a reference in this uh, uh, plan to an evaluation task force. Yeah. I mean, evaluation has been a failure of government for decades, uh, and it's because it's politically embarrassing or it's bureaucratically embarrassing. I mean, do you think do you think this evaluation task force, Gus, does, does it have a hope or is it going to wither and die? I think it has a hope. You know, we've, we've uh, moved on. We've had behavioural insights teams. Uh, we've got what works centres. Uh, I think an evaluation task force will be great. Um, and I think, you know, we need to be careful. I mean, God, I can think of 101 things that it could have been used for early on in the COVID crisis. Um, all I would say is by by focusing on evaluation, you, you deal with the, the ex post, if I'm allowed a bit of Latin, <laughs> um, uh, reality of, of projects. Whereas one of the things I think is missing from this is that 
and is missing in general is the ex ante part that actually how do we stop someone approving HS2 when on the basis of cost estimates that everyone knows are wildly optimistic and you know so so I think there's that you know the, the gatekeeper bit uh, and this document is quite heavy on the responsible owner part, which I think is a good thing. But you can be the responsible owner, but you can be dealing with a project that should never have got should never have got started. And my God, we end up with some big white elephants. So I don't think this will stop the white elephants, but it might stop the the, the elephants that are going to be good elephants uh, from maybe going off track. Can I just, Alex, just throw in one other thing that I noted in this. I'm just scrolling through to try and find it, but I can't. But I did seem to remember that I saw something saying that we will delegate more to departments. Mm. That's going to be a really interesting one to test, because thus far with this Prime Minister, we know he's had quite a strong centralising instinct, um, you know, both in terms of sort of setting agendas and taking the decisions himself. It always comes to the heart of sort of cabinet government is how much will a prime minister um, delegate, strengthen his ministers and allow them to sort of get on with the job whilst also having, I think they call it a smart centre, mm. um, also having a centre which is able to sort of make sure that it's keeping an eye on the most important priorities is, you know, checking for anything that, that might then cause problems down the line, um, you know, potential fires that are, are going to sort of hit government and also holding um, them to account to make sure that delivery is happening, that implementation is sort of driven through. But but yeah, it was it was interesting just to see that it, it, it particularly drew out this idea that we're going to delegate more to departments as if um, the Prime Minister was admitting that perhaps he was taking on too much for himself. Yes, a smarter centre and delegation to departments shouldn't be in conflict, but they uh, often often are in practice, as you as you say. Let's let's spend a few minutes then just talking about implementation and whether this is actually going to happen. So, fine words uh, in the document, uh, some of them and, and some perhaps uh, less fine. Um, but will uh, change actually happen? We all know that that is the hard bit of government um, reform. Uh, Kath, there were 30 action points uh, in this mm. document. Some of them were quite broad. Some of them were very specific. Some were inputs, some were outputs, um, as Gus said. Uh, is that too many or too few? Oh. Were you convinced by the action plan section? Um, well, look, some of them we know are already things that are in train. So, um, you know, establish a new curriculum and training campus for government. There's, there's already work going on on that front. So you can sort of, it's kind of my old uh, trick of you write a to-do list on Monday morning and you put down quite a few of the things that you've already done <laughs> so that you can motivate yourself. So um, they've done that. I'm a bit sceptical though. I mean, it says actions we will take in 2021. Um, yeah, okay, we're only halfway through the year, but that's still quite a lot when you are also dealing with all the, the various policy problems to actually um you know a lot of them yes they're just starting new processes and so forth but um I'd, I'd be a bit worried if they then get into a sort of box ticking exercise where they you know civil servants have to sort of put a paper out in order to show that they've achieved some purpose just so they can tick off something in this action rather than as Gus was saying earlier on having these action points as almost the outcomes you're trying to achieve rather than just the sort of activity that you're going to do and uh, Tim, uh, the the whole document, despite being signed by Cabinet Secretary Simon Case and uh, Boris Johnson, had a very Govian flavour. He's obviously mm. had a big influence on this. What happens if he's reshuffled? Yeah, so this is a, a very interesting question, I think. I mean, um, 
Michael Gove, I think, throughout his ministerial career has been someone who makes things happen. Uh, you know, whether that was in education um, and, and academies or when he was at DEFRA under Theresa May and banning all sorts of different types of plastic. You know, he he clearly, you know, he wants to use government to make things happen. And and he has done that a lot in, in his current role as well. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, who knows when, when there'll be a reshuffle and whether or not Gove will move. But if he were to move, um, I don't know that anyone would come into this role with quite the same... Uh, I guess, you know, intellectual uh, background in terms of thinking about how government works, because we, we know that that's something that, you know, he, he cares deeply about and thinks a lot about, but also the kind of, the sort of, uh, I don't know, the, the, the sort of oomph to get things going, basically. And um, I don't, I think it, it is at risk of um, of sort of floundering. One question we had uh, at the end of last year when Dominic Cummings left government was, uh, was whether that meant that sort of civil service reform was was kind of dead in the water was he the main driving force behind it now as we've said this is this is uh, a sort of a development and evolution of of his uh thinking but it's clear that the sort of the idea and the desire to make things happen is still there um i don't know if it would survive um the departure of michael gove as well gus do you, do you agree with that um, well, I think there's a difference between the civil service ends of this, which I think Simon uh, Case can get on with. And you know, we haven't mentioned the, the stuff about data analytics and all the rest of it. Strongly agree with all of that, strengthening those areas. But I think there's quite a lot he can do. Um, there's always been a problem about um, prime ministers saying ministers are going to do this, that and the other, and it never happening. So, yeah, I, I do worry that some of those things depend on ministers. Uh, like doing more training and understanding about assessing evidence, you know, I'll, yeah, I'm I'm pretty sceptical about whether any very much of that will happen. So having outside London, yeah, um, uh, having seen a number of these sort of come and come and go, and uh, the the Maudian reforms, the Blair era uh, reforms, and more, what are the signs, Gus, that you'll be? looking for that this that change is real that things are actually happening and that government is uh reforming what are the what, what are the canaries you think we should be looking for sure i, th- I think you, you pointed uh out already the the fact that a ministerial champion and i don't i mean i think it's great the prime minister signed this off but i mean he's not going to be the person implementing all of this so there needs to be some minister who strongly believes in it who carries it through and who stays in place for a long time so I think that, to me, would be uh, important and who shares all of this agenda. Um, that, I suppose, is the, is the biggest thing that you could ask for. Um, and, you know, some of the totemic things, like these uh, joint uh, cabinet committees, uh, getting rid of ones that are just ministers and making them mixed and trying to repeat the NSC formula throughout government, because that's not that difficult to do. Uh, I wish I'd done more of it. And um, that could happen pretty quickly. So there are some things that you kind of think, if they're really serious about this, they should do them. Set up the evaluation task force, you know, but lots of things they can do. Um, some others that that are more about uh, changing, uh, as it were, the cultures uh, are going to be much more uh, challenging and take longer. Yeah. And the other thing I'd say, I agree with that, but, I do think it is notable and helpful that it's, you know, this collective agreement and that um, permtex and ministers are supposedly coming together on this because 
going back to what you said at the beginning, Gus, it, you know, this is going to be most valuable if, if ministers keep connecting it to then achieving real world outcomes in terms of the policies that they're trying to implement, the change they're trying to, to bring for the public. Because if they just revert to seeing civil service reform as the sort of backroom stuff that, that involves lots of, you know, task force and um, pay structures and stuff like that, and don't keep connecting it up to the policy work that they're trying to do, then they'll lose interest in this. So if, it, if this documents, if the involvement of all of them allows them to keep saying, well, remember what was in that and remember our sort of, you know, desire to do all of this work, if that keeps reinforcing uh, at the top, that will help as well. And a note of optimism there, Kath, and thank you. Uh, for the re- for, exactly. And, and thank you for the reminder that uh, making government more effective is all about those real world changes uh, and uh, affecting citizens' lives for the uh, better. And that's it for this bonus edi- bonus edition of Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Kath Haddon, Tim Durrant, and especially to Gus O'Donnell. If you enjoyed this podcast, then head to IFG Live, our sister podcast channel. We've got a great new discussion on what does global Britain mean, featuring two of the UK's most distinguished former diplomats, Peter Ricketts and Peter Westmacott. And your regular Inside Briefing podcast will be with you later this week. There is quite a bit to talk about, as always. You can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review as well. We are always up for hearing your declarations of podcast reform. And uh, remember to check out all our work at www.instituteforgovernment.org.uk. You can find a brand new short paper, which I've written with our director, Bronwyn Maddox, responding to today's announcement. Thank you for listening, everybody. Lockdown delayed, trade deal signed with Australia, a stinging report into the Metropolitan Police and sweeping plans to reform the government. And it's only Tuesday. See you again soon. <laughs>